Revelation is where we are. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Um, I want you to back up really quick to chapter 1, verse 19. And we'll continue to, as we travel through Revelation, we'll continue to bring ourselves back to what we talked about historically because all of that information carries forward through this entire Revelation. So in Revelation 1.19, it gives us this outline for John to write the things which he has seen, which we interpret that as chapter 1 in regards to his vision as Jesus reveals himself. The things which are is the present. We uh, look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, these letters to the churches, which we're in the midst of right now. And then the things which will take place after this, Revelation chapter 4 begins with that specific phrase, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. That's from chapter 4 on is all talking about future events. So that's as an outline for the overall letter, this overall prophecy, this overall revelation that we're sitting in. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the outline for each one of these letters because there's a, there's a standard outline as, as Jesus is addressing every single one of these congregations. It follows a very specific pattern. And the church that we covered last week in Ephesus has the whole pattern. And uh, the different churches that he's addressing, the pattern shifts a little bit, but the ideas carry through. So as we look at the church that we looked at last week in Ephesus, he always brings up, as he's addressing a particular congregation, a group of people, real people, real time in history, real culture, yet at the end of every single one of these letters, it's he who has an ear, so all of us are supposed to be listening to this information and allowing him to apply it. But he brings up something about his nature and character that he revealed about himself in chapter 1. So in Ephesus, it was he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he's in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Again, the seven stars, he gives the interpretation that it's the seven angels of these seven churches. The golden lampstands, this, this picture of these different menorahs, is that Jesus is standing in the midst of these seven churches, seven again being this number of completion. But when he... He gives this whole revelation of himself to John. And we, remember, we sat in this whole idea. Is that the Jesus that we believe in? Jesus as he has revealed himself, not as we think him to be and what we want him to be, but who he is in reality. So when he identifies a particular attribute of himself to each one of these churches, it usually, not usually, it has an emphasis upon the encouragement and rebuke that he has for each one of the churches as we travel through. So with Ephesus, the pattern says, you know, so he reveals something about his person, his nature, his character. And then usually he sits in some kind of praise. Something about the congregation's behavior, actions, thoughts, that he is affirming. That Jesus says, this is right on. He tells the Ephesians, you know, I know your works. I know your labor. I know that you haven't grown weary in doing good. We talked about last week that the, the affirmation to the Ephesian church was pretty grade A congregations. 
Again, we don't know how many little churches represent in this whole community and how many believers were there in Ephesus, but a pretty solid uh, in their beliefs, in their practices. But after he gives a praise, he gives something that's affirming. Again, this is the standard, not to every single one of the churches. He gives them a problem. And he uses this word, here's what I have against you. Now, how many of you like to be confronted? We all know, we all have parents. We've all had authority figures in our life. Who likes to be confronted by mom and dad with something that they've done wrong? Who likes to be confronted by their spouse? Who likes to be confronted by their employer? Most of us despise confrontation. When somebody comes at us and says, I have, th- you're wrong. I have this against you. What's, what's our fleshly reaction? The fist comes up. I'm defensive. What do you mean? You don't have the full perspective. You don't know. You don't understand. All these kind of things. But then when we're sitting and talking about Jesus, Jesus says, I know you. And I have this against you. To the church in Laodicea, he says in chapter 3, verse 19, I think if my eyeballs can read that, he says, as many as I love, and it's as many, I I have affection for you. I love you. And as many as I love, I chasten, I rebuke, I correct, I discipline. As a parent is to do that for children as we are raising children up to be followers of the Lord. But even, even if a person's not a believer, this is just the activity in, in a parent and child relationship. When the parent loves the child, there's, there's a rebuke process. There's a chastening process, a correction. And it's not for the destruction of the individual. It's for their benefit, right? So in a lot of these letters, we have to sit in the word against and in prayer it's God is there any aspect of me that you were opposing is there an attitude is there an action is there a belief that you were opposing in my life and submitting to that um whatever that may be. And again, we're not to seek after and go digging for things that aren't there. But Lord, if you were standing in my way because you were preventing me from going down this path, don't let me be stubborn. I don't want to be stiff-necked and rebellious. What, it is, what is it that you have against me, if anything, right now? For the Ephesian church, it was their love. So we're going to, as we travel through, especially these letters, there really is a building that goes on. And he's focused on that first primary aspect of our relationship with God, and that is our love for him. If we do not love Jesus, nothing else matters. Anything else you may be off in, if you are off in that foundational relationship with him, that he is not primary, 
that you're not thinking about him, talking to him, worshiping him, seeking him, asking God to conform you into his image, depending upon his cross, depending upon his sacrifice, his resurrection, his promises. If that is off, that's, the, that's what needs to be corrected. And, he, and we sat in this last week. He says, I love you. I'm an affectionate for you. I've created you. You're broken. I've provided the means for you to be restored and fixed. Love me, and I'll walk with you, and I'll lead you, and I'll provide for you. And that's always this exhortation. So even if there's something against, he usually gets into these if statements. Then if you repent, if you remember, if you do and act according to what I'm telling you to do, here is the blessing. If you don't, if you reject, if you keep going down the path that you're going, that I am standing in opposition to you, if you keep heading down that path, here's the consequence. Pattern. And then at the end of these, he always gives some kind of promise. And as we sit in the promise, it's he who overcomes, he who finds victory over the flesh, over sin, over this world, over the devil. In me, Jesus says, here's your promise. And for Revelation, or for the Ephesian church, it was that promise that you get to eat, you get to have access to the tree of life. Which again, if you fast forward to the end of Revelation, there is the tree of life before the throne of God in the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and all who are in his kingdom have access to that. He gives us a hope and a promise. And that starts to become very important because we hold on to those promises because so much of life does not reflect the fulfillment of what he has promised us even today, where we, we are confident that he is going to come back. We are confident that when he comes back, that what he says is going to be real. And as I look to him as Lord and Savior, the promises, they're just overwhelming. And that's how it ought to be. So as we travel, we're going to try and cover two letters today. If we don't cover them both, then we'll come back to the second one. But I want to cover both today because the, church, the letter to the church of Smyrna and the letter to the church of Pergamos, they provide a contrast in regards to um, how they're responding to their cultures. So that encouragement to Ephesus was for them to remember who it is that Jesus is, remember Jesus' love for them, remember their love in return to Jesus that caused them to believe in him in the first place, to repent, to turn around from their current behaviors, to allow God to change the mind, and to act, to do those things that he is leading each one of us to do. So in that foundational aspect of our relationship with him, now let's look at the letters to these next two churches, and we'll read through them both together. So Revelation 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write. These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. 
And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which, are, which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days when Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You as near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So back up there in verse 8. So second letter is being written to this community in Smyrna, to the church that's in Smyrna. Smyrna gets its name from, uh, from myrrh. So remember when the wise men come from the east at Jesus' birth to present from him gifts, they give to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The word myrrh means bitterness. But what myrrh is, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an incense. It's this rock, so to say, that really doesn't have much of a fragrance. But when you crush that, that's when the fragrance is re- released. You crush it, you burn it, the smoke rises, and it's, a, it's an incense. And for this culture and this time, you know, when Jesus is presented that by these wise men, it's seen as a gift for his burial. It's a, it's a gift that's associated with the, the prediction of his sacrifice that is coming later in his life, as you look at that account in Matthew. So here you have this community in Smyrna. It's essentially a sister city to Ephesus. It's about 30, 35 miles up the coast. And it's in competition, so to say, in regards to, you know, who's the number one community in, in, in whatever the, you know, the ranking system of the day was. They were in competition with each other as, as the best city, whether it's in merchandise, whether it's in their idolatry, whatever that may have been. And these were competing cities. So as Jesus is communicating to the believers in Ephesus, they're abiding in a very specific culture 
that's distinct from a culture just 30 miles away. And I find that fascinating. That's literally from here to the airport. So for Smyrna, he identifies himself as the first and the last, right? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's reminding them about his eternity, about his sovereignty, that he knows the beginning from the end. And listen to this encouragement. Jesus was dead and he came to life. Do any of you fear death? I did. Before I knew Jesus, I was afraid to die. And that is the foundational thought that he used to drive me to him. So here's this idea, this reality that our God took on human flesh, tabernacled amongst us, and he died the death that every single human being faces. And then the hope of that victory, he became alive. If we think about what, what, what is death, it's this cutting off, this separation from the body, this separation from life. When we talk about spiritual death, it's a separation from God. That when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were spiritually severed from God, and God drove them out of his presence. And here Jesus dies the death that we all deserve, lays it down willingly, and then has victory over that death, was able to take life back to himself because the sacrifice was worthy. It's fascinating. But think about that attribute of him and to the community that he's talking to. So he's talking to a church that is suffering. He says, I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know what it's like for you to go to school every single day and be opposed by people who you want to love you and to be affirmed by you. You want to fit in the crowd. You want to be loved. You want to be cared for. You want to be part of the group. You don't want to be alone. I know what it's like for you to go into that culture every single day and have people stand in opposition to you that are attempting to push you around, push your mind, push your body, push your life to conform. And this is, this is ultimately what tribulation, it's, it's a pressure, it's a crushing. It's you're narrow, you're confined. There's nowhere to turn, there's nowhere out. And all of us, we, when we're being pressed, we seek to be free from that pressure. And it's interesting that Jesus isn't promising them freedom from their tribulation. He's promising them more is coming. He says, I know your tribulation. He says, I know your poverty. But the reality is that they're rich. And again, this is a, we sit in a very affluent culture. We have lots of money. We have lots of things. In this community, there's a, there's a reason why the believers, the church, is poor in Smyrna. Remember, as we talk about Ephesus and Smyrna, they're, they're sister cities. They are very affluent communities. Trade is good. There's lots of money. There's lots of temples. There's lots of cash flowing around. So why is it the church is poor? So there's different ideas. One would be, well, only poor people believe in Jesus. Is that reality? No. 
Is that the dominant trend even in the early church? Yeah. Why? Riches can be really blinding. I'm okay. I have everything I need. Why do I need God? I have a good life. I'm provided for. I'm protected. I'm investing in the next generation. Money can be blinding. But here, this church is poor. So it's more than likely not just because the poor of the community are believing. Is it because of their tribulation? So has this community rejected Jesus and rejected followers of Jesus to the point that they are seizing their goods, their livelihood? Is that the kind of persecution that's going on in this community? We don't have any records of that. That's a possibility, but we don't have any records that that was going on in this community. More than likely, what most commentators think is that the believers in Smyrna were finding it hard to engage in commerce and be um, obedient and in right step in their relationship with God in an uncompromising way. So that the marketplace of the culture to participate in that marketplace would have compromised their relationship with Jesus. And that's why to this particular community, Jesus has no rebuke. Because they're holding on to him, their first love. They're processing through life. And in their processing, as, they're, as they are following Jesus and holding on to them, their culture is rejecting them. And that hurts. And that's having not just a personal um, pain in the mind and the heart. It's actually impacting their their livelihoods, their jobs, their ability to earn. And Jesus, again, to all of us, declares what is true wealth, and that's a relationship with him. And he gives us encouragement, too. He says, I know, I know the blasphemy. And this is, I know what people say about you. I know how they slander you behind your back. I know how they slander you to your face. And sit in the Gospels. Does Jesus know personal slander? Was Jesus rejected by his family? That hurts. Was Jesus rejected by the community of Nazareth? To the point that they were dragging him to a cliff to toss him off. That hurts. Was Jesus rejected as the Son of God? Or his teachings rejected. His life was rejected. On the cross, rejected. You deserve death. You deserve to be cut off from our society. Does Jesus know rejection? And so when he says, I know what people say about you. I know what people think about you. I know how they stand in opposition to you. I know. But those who say they are Jews, so this isn't a, you know, saying Jews and spitting at the same time. The word Jews here is elevated. Those 
who have a, those who are to have a right relationship with God. God chose Abraham and he promised Abraham's seed. That seed is identified as the Jews. So those who say they are Jews, but they're not. Those who say that they are, that Abraham is their father, but he's not their father. Those who say that they believe in the almighty God, but no, they have no relationship with me. They say that they're saved. They say this, but Jesus' understanding of truth is totally in contrast to what is being stated. They say that they are Jews, but they're not. And think, think about it. Can you imagine Jesus coming and telling us, this is a congregation of Satan? Anybody want to sit in that rebuke? Man. So here in this community, and often as you travel through the book of Acts, as the gospel is going into particular communities, those that the gospel is first going to is to the Jews of that community, and then it's usually reaching out to the Gentiles as that influence and that faith and that evangelism grows. But those who stand in the greatest opposition to believers in Jesus is the Jews at this time. From the government, from, you know, the Roman government of this time, it's very clear that they look at Christians as just a subsect of Jews. So when there's an issue going on between these two groups, the government's usually saying, you guys go work it out. This, has no, this is a matter of doctrinal differences between you guys. You go figure it out. But often the Jews were the source of the the slander and the opposition against defining Jesus as the Messiah because many are saying no, and then there are many who are saying yes to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, those who reject me, those Jews by birth who reject me as Christ, as Messiah, as King, as the Anointed One, their assembly their father, their thoughts, their fruit is of the adversary, Satan. And this is where I say, God, keep that being, keep that being away from me. The authority of his that you have freed me from, keep me free. The lies that he has whispered to me in all the variety of ways, expose him. Let me know your truth. Don't let me congregate with those who were Satan-minded. Don't let me be Satan-minded. Don't let me be Satan-mouthed. slandering. And again, in the, in, as we get into Pergamos, that heart of Satan, it's within the body, not just external to the body of Christ. And the exhortation, there's no rebuke for this congregation. What does he tell them? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of people who hate you. Don't be afraid of people who stand in opposition to you. Don't be afraid of man. Don't be afraid of woman. Don't be afraid of opinions. Don't be afraid of labels. The 
exhortation, do not be afraid. I have no idea how many times, I didn't, I didn't look it up, how many times it shows up in the Bible, but it is all over the place. Why? Because we are very fearful. There's a lot of things that cause us to tremble. There's lots of worry. There's lots of reality that causes us to shake in our boots. And God's given us this emotion of fear, but what does he tell us to do with it? He says, fear me, not man, not the circumstance. And fear has, it has the idea on the side of phobia and that fear and that trembling. It has the side of being in awe, that my fear of God impacts my behavior. Just like when we are afraid of people, that fear will impact what we choose to do and what we choose not to do. One of the fascinating things in Revelation, and unless you understand what fear is in this command not to fear, this is the only way this makes sense. In Revelation 21, so he's talking about the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, There's this promise in verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Verse 8, it says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable murderers goes on down. Um, they will have their parts in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the, uh, the, when he says don't fear, that's not having fear in regards to people and circumstances is what it means to be courageous in your relationship with Jesus. It's not standing on your own two feet. It's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's having confidence in him and who he is. And that's the only way that fear is cast out. When we understand his nature, his character, his love, his attention, his provision, his protection. When we understand that, fear is cast out. I cast it out. He casts it out. Do not fear. Be courageous. A coward is somebody who remains in that fear from the circumstance and from the culture and shies away from confidence in God and bends to the norms of the culture and says, I'm going to do what the culture does because it's more comfortable. And Jesus says, be courageous. Trust me. And again, this isn't not in your own strength, but in who I am. Do not fear. And there's, a, there's this blanket. Don't fear anything that you fear. <laughs> what are those things that you worry about? You ever look at yourself in the mirror and all you see is all your, where you don't line up with what your ideal is? Whether you're looking at your mind, looking at your heart, looking at your body, looking at your life. I'm not matching the ideal of what culture says I should be. And if I see that, then everybody else sees it too. And we spend all this time covering ourselves up, makeup, clothes, attitudes, just whatever it may be to to hide who we are on the inside or to hide what we see as mistakes and faults so that society will keep us will affirm us, will love us. Jesus says, all of those things that you're afraid of, don't fear any of them. 
your imagination, the lies that you say to yourself, the lies that the culture preaches to you, the lies somebody that you love may give you words that tear you down. Don't fear those things. Again, this is easy to say, but we put it all into practice in faith in him. And these things, they're true points of suffering. And here, this is, this is fascinating. Uh, we were talking about this morning, you can sit in Job. When Satan comes to God and accuses Job, accuses God at the same time, saying, God, the only reason Job worships you is because you bless him. You take away all of those material blessings. He'll curse you to your face. You look at the whole circumstance of Job's life. It was a test. And here, Jesus is saying, I know your tribulation. I know your suffering. I know the blasphemy, the slander that is coming against you. Prison is in your future. And prison in this culture, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a thing of punishment it's a, thing of, it's a thing of testing. It's a place that people were placed into to find out the facts. So it's a holding tank so we can figure out what is true. Part of prison in this culture often involved torture. It's a place of waiting for trial until the day of judgment in this culture. And it's a place where you would remain until your future execution. And Jesus is telling, so these are, these are believers. I believe in Jesus. I love him and I trust him. And their savior is coming to them and saying, I am giving the devil permission to put you in prison for the purpose of testing you. Anybody comfortable with that? I'm not. Is it what I need? The, uh, the idea of 10 days, when you look at being tested 10 days, for those of you who know the story of Daniel. So at the beginning of Daniel, you have the youth of the culture in Jerusalem, the good-looking ones, the smart ones. They're taken out of their culture and they're dragged to Babylon as prisoners. And they're placed into a new education system in Babylon. And part of that new education system involves their diet. What does Daniel do? Even though I'm in the midst of this culture, God, I'm committed to you. I will not let the Babylonians defile me. I will not let them make me unclean. So in that, Daniel goes to the man that's in authority over him and says, hey, when it comes to food, test us. Give us 10 days. The food that's sacrificed to idols, that's part of your idolatrous worship, we're asking that you would not let us eat that for these 10 days of testing and see how we look at the end of the 10 days. And the, the narrative of that is that at the end of the 10 days, the diet that Daniel and his friends are on, that they look better and they look fatter and their flesh is rounder than those who are eating the king's delicacies. So in that, again, there's, there's a very specific circumstance for Daniel, but as we relate it to the idea of, what, well, what is it that you're going to be put into prison and tested for 10 days? 
We don't know what the 10 days means literally. We have no idea what this meant for the culture of Smyrna. But we try and apply it to our own life and our own culture. That here's a period of time where God is allowing the devil authority in your life for the purpose of testing you. And God never tests you to cause you to fail. His testing of you is to refine out of you what does not belong there. You say that Jesus is your Lord. Is he really? What happens if this gets taken away? What happens if this gets given to you? Our entire lives is a test after a test after a test. I, go, I am going through a constant refining process in my relationship with God. I am asking him, God, place me into the positions that I need to be today so that you would transform me into the image of Christ. Sometimes that promise is going to be, God's going to bless me. What do you do with the blessings that God gives to you? Do you only act selfishly with those things and serve yourself and serve those that love you? Or when you are blessed, do you seek to bless others? That's a test. He tests us with blessing. What do you do when Jesus takes something away from you that you want? I wanted that relationship. I wanted that job. I wanted to live there. I wanted to be friends with that person. I wanted them to accept me. When he takes something away... And we sit in the conversation with Job and his friends, and we sit there and go round and round and round and round in our own heads and conversations with other people. And he says, without knowledge. So, God, what test do you have for me? Are you being tested right now? Has he given you something? Has he taken something away? What does he tell you to do in the test? Be faithful. What does that mean? You personally be trustworthy with what he has given to you. And he is the one who makes us faithful. You don't make yourself faithful. Faithful is let your life be praiseworthy voiced from your father that he would say well done satan came into your life to destroy you to steal from you to take away to blaspheme you and to blaspheme me god says i'm allowing that process god says for there's a variety of reasons but for the purpose that you may be tested you ever failed a test how do you feel when you fail miserable you ever been retested when you got an a the first time and he brings about the test again god didn't i already pass that do i really need to go through this again yes you do be faithful until what you die 
but God, I'll be alone. No, you won't. I'm with you. But God, they'll make fun of me. I know, you, I know they will. They'll make fun of me too. But God, they, they call me this. But that's not true. This is what I call you. Sitting in his identity. Being faithful until death. And in the contrast, I will give you the crown of life. That hope that even if the suffering that you are in leads to your physical death, you have this promise. I will give you my life. That's all I want. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death we see later on in Revelation, and here's the reality that every single human being who is created, past, present, and future, shall stand before Jesus as judge. Every single one of us, through death or through that moment of rapture, whatever, whatever that looks like, will stand before Jesus as judge. And there's a separation that occurs. Those who are invited in are invited into his life. And this is the repetitious theme that we're going to see through Revelation. The encouragement to the Ephesian church was access to the tree of life. The encouragement to the Smyrna church is here's the crown of life. And then in that separation, it's, it's identified as the second death. So death is a separation. Physical death is being separated from the body. And in that second separation that occurs in his presence, some are separated to him. Those who are separated away from God, that is called the second death. And they remain as they are in this place that is identified as hell, the lake of fire, it burns with brimstone. You look at all the descriptions that we have of hell, it impacts all of our senses. It's the smell of sulfur. It's the hearing, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. The taste, it's everybody's thirsty. The heat and regards to touch. Sight is completely dark. Darkness you can feel. And what that death is, is what Jesus says that every single human being deserves and it's what he communicates to us that he died on the cross for. So that nobody has to abide in that. But those who reject, those who do not overcome, those who turn to the pressures of fear, those who turn to the pressures of society, those who turn to the pressures of self and the devil and fail those, those tests to say, of where you were rejecting the Lord and remaining in you are because in that moment it provides comfort. The warning that he is expressing is there is an eternal discomfort if you do not find your victory in me. And here is where comfort comes from. And again, then you sit in heaven, deals with all these different senses that God has given to us to experience his creation. So in all of these, for Smyrna... There's no rebuke. 
But the reality is, is that they're living in hard, hard times. And the reality is we sit in our current culture. The writing is on the wall that if you stand up for Jesus, not a cultural Jesus, but Jesus as he reveals himself, as he is, if you stand up for your love for him, his love for you, for what he says is right, what he says is wrong, what he says is true, what he says is false, if you stand in that gap, you will be slandered. You will be tested. Do not fear. Think, think about just who God is in definition. Does not he well up great courage? If he is for me, who can possibly be against me? If somebody takes your life, be faithful unto death. I will give you my eternal life. I'll give you light. I'll give you the tree of life. I'll give you the crown of life. I'll give you light. I'll give you community. I'll give you acceptance. Find your affirmation in him. Find your acceptance, your identity in him. Don't let the world define you in the way. They may give you a label, but don't let anybody else give you an identity other than Jesus. And that is tremendously important. Boy, we didn't even touch Pergamos, did we? I'm always way too ambitious. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, and we confess to you that we trust you. Lord, I confess to you that the, the thought of um, persecution, the thought of losing relationships, losing job, losing income, losing life, because I love you, a lot of those things are very foreign to me. Because my life experience has been that of an abundant blessing through turning away from the world and turning to you. I know that there are many brothers and sisters in this world. Today. Who will lose their life simply because they bow their knee to you as Savior and Lord. We pray for them that they would find their strength, their peace, their courage in you. But I want to pray for those who are in the room, who are listening, Lord, who are alone, who are isolated, who are listening to those daily pressures to be someone else other than who you are creating them and directing them to be. I ask, Lord, that you would reveal, manifest yourself to them today. Inflate them with your power, with your zeal, with your boldness to be courageous in mind and heart and mouth. that they would see you in all of your glory and all of your majesty. 
they would not be afraid of things and that they would not be afraid of sufferings, that they would be courageous in you. Even if that costs them things. For those who are alone, Lord, and isolated and feel different from all of their peers, from their coworkers, let it be known to them this day and forevermore that you are with them. I am with you. Come quickly, Emmanuel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.